Everyone is a character. All characters are Tatiana. Conclusion, Tatiana is everyone. You're listening to Tatiana is Everyone, an Orphan Black podcast. I'm your host, Chris. And I'm Stephanie. And while this episode may contain spoilers for Season 3, Episode 3, which is called... Formalized, Complex, and Costly. Thank you. It does not contain any spoilers for future episodes of Orphan Black. <laughs> I always I was enjoy that you like to make that clarification. <laughs> I, well, since we do two different podcasts about different TV shows, sometimes I have to remind myself which one we're talking about. Interesting. Yeah, it's kind of sad, but it's true. Okay, good to know. Just to clarify, we are actually recording slightly differently than we normally do. We're recording this whole thing on Tuesday, which is normally when we release the episode. But uh, the the good side of this <laughs> is that we have all the feedback from from listeners that have sent in feedback. And so we're going to incorporate that into the discussion. And hopefully everything works out okay. <laughs> I think it will. Let's let's be optimistic, Chris. Oh, I am optimistic. I'm just uh, trying to to temper everyone's expectations here. <laughs> so we want to start by talking about Allison first. Yes, let us talk about the Hendrixes. Which is unusual for us. We usually start with Sarah, but I think we need to talk about Allison first. She had a pretty independent storyline this episode. She did, uh, as. Tends to be the case with Allison. She and Donnie have started selling drugs. <laughs> and are very happy about it. <laughs> like, very, very happy about it. And Donnie so, was all like, we should have started doing this years ago. Years ago. And it's all very fun and funny. And I enjoy her delivering her little drug packages of soap and the very complicated setup that she's made herself in the garage to actually make and cure her own soap. That's commitment. She did. She went all out with the soap making stuff. She did, which makes sense for Allison, but it still. Does. But still. Like, soap, when you make it like that, it takes a few weeks or sometimes longer to cure before you can use it. Though, granted, probably she might not be that picky about the soap because clearly that's not what she's really selling, but that's still a big commitment to do it. Yeah. I mean, they, their garage was, like, really totally converted into, like, a soap-making haven, which is amusing. But, but yeah, and I like how it comes with a dose of, of blackmail. <laughs> so, can I count on your support? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that was really, like, this is very scheming of Allison. I, I kind of respect her strategy here. Knowing that people would, because they're her neighbors and she knows them, would not want to support her because they know she went to rehab recently, to use this as leverage to build a voter base for herself, like, that's pretty clever. It is. It's very smart. It's also very disturbing. <laughs> it, yeah, yeah. But Allison's always been one of the scarier clones. Oh, I know. <laughs> I'm aware. But yeah. And... <laughs> And the scene where where Marcy Coates shows up at the garage and Allison's all, go sell a house, Marcy. That is my favorite, new favorite euphemism for go F yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. 
it used to be all oh, go fly a kite, but now it's all oh, go sell a house. <laughs> I think I think from now on, if I get really, really pissed at somebody, I'm just gonna say, Go sell a house, Marcy. Go sell a house. Yeah. It's a good no, one. No, but I'm I'm gonna throw in the Marcy too, just to confuse them. <laughs> okay. That sounds like a plan. That sounds like a plan. I was also rather amused uh Davia in her email sent in the comment, Allison needs to cut something. Run, Marcy. Yes, yes. Again, frightening clone, Allison. Like we love her, but she has she has a scary side. A very, very scary side. But I'm enjoying seeing Donnie and Allison working as a little team. Yeah. And and just, you know, this I don't know, it's kind of it's kind of weeds-ish, but a little bit darker maybe because they've killed somebody already. Like <laughs> they've each killed somebody already. I don't know. But I'm enjoying I think, it. I think I've only seen like the first episode or two of Weeds, so I have very little context. So okay. I'll just take your word for it. Okay. But I did I did like it, again in the showdown with Marcy, that scene. I noticed at some point that Donnie is standing right behind Allison, sort of with his with his hands on her shoulders. And my first thought was, like, oh, it's so supportive. And then it's like, wait, is he holding her back? <laughs> like, physically restraining her just to make sure she doesn't pounce on Marcy? <laughs> well, both might be true. <laughs> that is that is my thought, yes. <laughs> but we got some interesting feedback about Allers- Allison, I almost called her Allergen. <laughs> <laughs> One of those days. <laughs> we almost got, sorry, we got some interesting feedback. We didn't almost get it. We got it. It happened. <laughs> <laughs> we got some interesting feedback about, sorry, Alice, Alice, I almost did it again. Allison and her storyline generally that I, I thought it really kind of like made me, gave me a thought this week, gave me some thinking, thinky, think, blah, blah. can you tell I've been sick? <laughs> Poor Stephanie. <laughs> Yeah, feel free to leave that in or you can you can get to this part. We got some interesting feedback about Allison's storyline generally, and it really gave me some interesting things to think about this week. And I think who was the voicemail from? Was it from Mark? It's from Matthew. Matthew. Sorry, Matthew. Hi, I'm Matthew Cooper from Australia, and I'm a really big fan of your podcast. I'm sending this in because I was wanting to ask you guys about the Allison storyline that is being set up in these first couple of season three episodes that I'm a little concerned about. Well, I do agree that Allison and Donnie have always been a funny team, and I've enjoyed their Breaking Bad-style storyline, uh, straight and narrow suburbanites turning to crime with a large slice of black comedy last season, uh, with them both going through a Babby's first murder kind of situation together. I'm getting a little tired of Allison's storylines being fairly disconnected to the other clones. Last season, Allison's storylines included a community play, being placed in a rehab, and dealing with the deaths of Ainsley and Dr. Leakey. Uh, well, fun, these stories seemed fairly isolated from the main plots of the show. Even Leaky's death hasn't really featured into the main plot, as Leaky was out of the picture at leader by the time he was killed by Donnie. This was even lampshaded by Allison herself, after Cosima's condition worsened and Allison stated in a clone Skype call that she had focused too much on trivial personal things and apologised to Cosima and Sarah. Now that I think about it, even in Season 1, Allison was a little apart from Cosima and Sarah, her storylines of suspecting Donnie and Ainsley and her minor self-destruction with drugs, booze, and extramarital sex, rarely crossing paths with, paths with the main plot. Now that we've started season three and Allison is looking to take over a drug dealer's business, yet another Allison plotline that looks to have nothing to do with the main plot, I found myself getting a little frustrated, uh, with this season looking chock-a-block full of main plots from 
military involvement, cast of clones, Delphine leader intrigue, Sarah looking to rescue Helena, and Cosima's search for a cure. Do we really need another wacky Ellison and Donnie suburbanite side plot? You know, as fun as they are. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, especially if you think I'm dead wrong and this drug-dealing plotline will actually be vital to the main plot. Uh, thank you for the great podcast, and for your other podcast, uh, Drinks with Dull with Annie. They've been great fun to listen to. Uh, bye. I think Matthew makes some some good points there. Actually, Dan had a similar comment about not seeing how Allison's story would connect to the main story. Although Dan did sort of frame it in that, you know, like in season two, Allison had her whole rehab story, which led to Donnie finding out that they're clones, which led to Donnie accidentally killing Dr. Leahy, which brought it back to the main story. So Dan was sort of talking about, uh, you know, not seeing how this was going to connect back to the main story, but being interested in seeing how it would. So I don't know. Thoughts? Well, I was thinking about it this week and how Allison usually functions story writing wise, how her how her storylines usually work. And I was thinking about the fact that oftentimes Allison's world, Allison's storylines, they are a bit a bit of a vacation mm-hmm. from the main storyline. It's it's like the relief. It's the pressure release valve on Orphan Black. Right. So we have like for example in season one in episode six, variations on domestication, Allison gets into a pickle and so Sarah comes and Felix come to her party, which is sort of disastrous, but, you know, that's where Paul kind of comes and confronts Sarah, and she ends up sort of, you know, confessing to him and at the end of the episode. So it does tie back to the main storyline. But, you know, that's kind of the the dark comedy episode of season one. And similarly, in season two, we have the episode where Vic is putting pressure on Allison, and Sarah comes in and, you know, hijinks ensue, but that's where Donnie finds out, leads to killing Leaky. So it does ultimately relate back to our main clone storyline, but at the same time, this is the third season, and I'm with Matthew to the extent that I would like to see Allison more involved regularly in the main clone storyline, personally. Right. I mean, it makes sense to me that she is slightly separated. You know, she has a whole family life thing going on. So you can see why she maybe wouldn't be involved in um, in certain things that the others are involved in. But yeah, I, I do get the frustration of let's have her be more part of the group. I mean, I, I get that. That's fair. And they, because they, from the beginning, they've set Allison as a little bit outside of the clone club goings on. You know, I'm trying, I don't know the episode offhand, but in season one, when, I think it's it's in episode four, maybe, when... Sarah and and Kasima are talking about the knife that Sarah got from from Helena. Mm-hmm. And I think Kasima asks Allison, or excuse me, Kasima asks Sarah, "You didn't tell Allison about this, right?" And Sarah's like, "No, no, 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 no. Like, uh, she couldn't handle this." So, but while I think Allison has come to better terms with the whole clone thing in recent years, they, I think she still, maybe Sarah and Kasima still try to kind of keep her on the outskirts a little bit, right? She does have a limited skill set in as far as like what she's really good at. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, there was the conversation also in the first season about how, you know, Beth was the cop and Cosimo was the scientist, and Allison herself said that she was basically the bankroll. Right. So she's like, That's it's how I could contribute. So Right. And they did bring Allison in in episode one to play Sarah. And so yes. she was involved there. 
But like, for example, in, in this episode, I really wish that they had brought Allison in to help with disposing of Seth's body. She would have been so good at it. She would have been so annoyed with them for making her do it, but she would have done an excellent job of it. Because <laughs> the thing is, even though they don't know about the whole leaky incident, Felix and, and everybody else, I would still think, okay, who's good at help cl- at cleaning up messes? Allison. Mm-hmm. Like- <laughs> exactly. Well, she she already played somebody who did help clean up a murder scene, so. <laughs> but it would it would be logical to me that they would think, ooh, let's call Allison. And right. Maybe in that period, you know, we could see Felix take note of the fact that she was surprisingly seemed experienced at this. Uh, You know, like, I feel like it could have been fun to have brought Allison in on that situation. Right. We did get an email, I think it was from Aaron, commenting that maybe Allison's new supply would come in handy if if Cosima wanted some alternative medications. I don't know that that's going to happen, but but we did get an email saying maybe maybe that's a possibility. I learned yesterday that that Melanie, our friend Melanie, who was in our episode about the Prolethians, the farming Prolethians, mm-hmm. she's really hoping that the whole Allison drug dealing soap making storyline is going to end in them killing Marcy and turning her into soap. That's a dark, Melanie. I know it's really dark. I don't know that I want that to happen. <laughs> I, I, w- when it comes to Orphan Black, I'm like, it's possible, but I don't know that I want that to happen. I don't know that they w- that I want them to go that dark with Allison. But that's correct me. me if I'm wrong. But that is taken from another popular movie, right? Well, in Fight Club, they made soap out of human fat, and mm-hmm. so yeah, they could totally be like, oh, a movie inspired thing. But I don't know that I want. Allison to kill people on purpose. Right. And there's been a little too much accidental murders to, to like to have another one be, uh, you know, my, my, my suspension of disbelief would grow a little thin, I think, if another yeah. accidental murder happened. It would just be a little too convenient. Yeah. Yeah. You know what it is? I'm, I'm combining Fight Club and Sweeney Todd in my mind. That's. That's what it is. That's what it sounds like to me. Fight Club meets Sweeney Todd. It's possible. It's possible. Disturbing I'm- is what I'm saying. <laughs> I don't want to see that happen. And again, yeah. And it, I could, I, like I said, I could see them going there, but I don't know that I want that personally. Yeah. I hope not, but we'll see. So speaking of the whole, you know, dead Seth in the bathtub situation, we got a little bit, a tiny bit, and not nearly enough bit of Cosima this week. But she was very cutely sciencing it up with Scott. She was. It could be worse, is what I'm saying. (laughs) Well, and this week was one of those weeks where I I completely forgot that uh, the same actor was playing all the characters. Like, I was (laughs) watching uh, watching the scene with Cosima. I was like, oh, Tatiana Maslany finally got here. Like, ah, but I realized I'd seen her, you know, at least a Sarah by that point. I think Allison, too. Ugh. <laughs> you weirdo. <laughs> I know. I know. But I just, I forgot. I was thinking, I wonder if this was, this episode was maybe a a light Tatiana episode because there were no doubled clone scenes, except for the one with, with Kasima on Skype, but that's easy to do comparatively. Mm-hmm. And 
there was a big chunk of the storyline that she wasn't in. Like, there was a bunch of scenes that she wasn't in this episode. So I wonder if they were needing to give her a light episode because she had a particularly heavy episode or two coming up. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they said they filmed episodes two and three kind of concurrently and then filmed yeah. one after that. Yeah. And then went back to four or something after that. So it wouldn't surprise me if it, if it was mostly just that they needed her more on episode two or something. And yeah, it just got or shuffled one. this way. Right. Yeah, because there was the whole clone A being clone C playing Clode type of thing going on in that one. So that one probably took a really long time to shoot. Probably so. Since they call the uh, the techno dolly the time vampire or something, right? <laughs> but the autopsy scene, sorry, was very cute. And we got squeamish Scott. And I remember we got it. We don't, we He's only been to Comic Con once. I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, I, but we got a, an email from somebody who said their mother, who I'm guessing maybe is works in a lab or as a nurse or something she's like scott had blood on his face why didn't you follow like proper lab protocol and i noticed that too did you as well i was thinking that when i was watching the scene yeah a little bit well you notice felix has some blood on his neck at the the opening scene too so yeah there's just seth blood everywhere i don't expect to know better scott should have known better (laughs) that's a good call okay that's fair Though it kind of, the placement of the blood, and unless I'm misremembering, it was kind of over on his neck. And so I wonder if maybe he turned his head while Cosima was doing something splashy with the blood, and it kind of got on his face that way. Or if, I mean, his, his gloves were basically covered in glove up to at least his wrists. So it's also possible that he just sort of like, like scratched an itch without thinking about it or something. Or was it more splashy than smeary? I can't remember off the top of my head. But poor Scott just was clearly in over his head there. And and we got a several people saying like, man, Kasima's hardcore. But I'm thinking she helped do an autopsy on somebody who looked exactly like her. I feel like anything else involving dead bodies is pretty much a piece of cake after that. That is what I was thinking also, yes. Yeah. Oh, so speaking of of the bathtub autopsy, let's talk about the results of the bathtub autopsy because they pull out the the squishy brain, which Josh Vokey did say was squishy. <laughs> if anybody was wondering, so they said that the glitchy caster brain looked like it had Kreutzfeld Jakob, and we are going to put a link to the Mayo Clinic's info on Kreutzfeld Jakob in case anybody's interested. Uh, it'll be in the show notes. So it was kind of interesting, though, because uh, it's basically, you know, it, it uh, sort of as they've as they indicated in the episode, it messes with your brain. And apparently initial signs and symptoms of Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease include personality changes, anxiety, depression, memory loss, impaired thinking, blurred vision, insomnia, difficulty speaking, difficulty swallowing and sudden jerky movements. And uh, apparently it is, it's similar to like dementia or Alzheimer's, but it's apparently a lot faster than those. And is is it contagious? Uh, I believe it can be, yeah. Okay. Hang on just a second. Let me look up the... Because I should, I feel like I should say I, both of us know of Kreutzfeldt-Jakob from X-Files. <laughs> yes. 
I believe in that episode, other people did contract it, but they were cannibals and they were eating eating exactly. pieces of this guy. So, well, because I'm, okay, anybody who remembers the mad cow disease thing of the nineties, that's what that was. It was a variation. It was like a a rare variation of Creutzfeldt Jakob. So. Here we go. The risk of CJD is low. The disease can't be transmitted through coughing or sneezing, touching or sexual contact. The three ways it develops are sporadically. Most people with classic CJD develop the disease for no apparent reason. CJD that occurs without explanation is termed spontaneous CJD or sporadic CJD and accounts for the majority of cases. Also, by inheritance, in the United States, about 5 to 10% of people with CJD have a family history of the disease or test positive for a genetic mutation associated with CJD. This type is referred to as familial CJD. So it's possible that the person that they based the castor clone genome on had a genetic marker for CJD, or it's also just probably more possible that it is an effect of the cloning process like the the castor clones excuse me the leta clones have obviously the one that leads to the respiratory illness the polyps and the respiratory illness they're suggesting i think that this is basically the castor clone equivalent so i think it's more likely they're suggesting it's a consequence of the cloning process right i guess so here this is kind of interesting too the the third method of of developing cjd says, by contamination, a small number of people have developed CJD after being exposed to infected human tissue during a medical procedure such as a cornea or skin transplant. Hmm. Also, because standard sterilization methods do not destroy abnormal prions? Prions? Do you know? I'm not sure. A few people have developed CJD after undergoing brain surgery with contaminated instruments. Cases of CJD related to medical procedures are referred to as iatrogenic? I-A-T-R-O-G-E-N-I-C, CJD. Variant CJD is linked primarily to eating beef infected with bovine spongiform encephalopathy, the medical term for mad cow disease. So there you go. So yeah, it could be that they either used some process or something that went wrong, or maybe like the Lita clones, maybe it was something they built in to have sort of like a... a self-terminating aspect to the clones they produce? I mean, I don't know. Because I can see the respiratory disease emerges from a change they try to make so that the clones would be sterile. And I don't really understand how this is re- could be related to something that they were doing intentionally. I mean, it's not, it's not impossible that it was, but I'm trying to think of Okay, like what? What were they trying to do that caused them to have a horrible neurological disease? I have no idea. (laughs) But but you went to like the serious stuff regarding the autopsy first. We did not talk about the flirting, the adorable flirting. Well, which I isn't isn't it better to get the the unpleasant stuff out of the way? (laughs) I guess I shouldn't call it flirting. It was maybe flirting, but I felt vindicated because. Clone cast was like, I think I ship art of Felix and Scott. I'm like, thank you. There's some little little sparks there. I'm not crazy. Thank you very much. Uh, oh, you probably didn't see it because you don't follow them. I will. I will link you to it after we're done recording. But there was, I think it was from the official Orphan Black Twitter. They had they had a little gif of 
Scott and Felix. Not from this episode, actually. It was from 302. But they gift it the moment that made you start shipping it. <laughs> I don't think... Well, I'm, I'm not, like, hopeful or, or thinking that it's going to go anywhere. But I just... I felt a little vindicated that there were other people last week being like, I could see it. I could see it. <laughs> I did see more people talking about it after this most recent episode, so... Huh? Huh? It was, I guess it was the nicknames. It got people on board. <laughs> there were more than one, and they were cute. Because Lieutenant Scotty. They were adorable. And then Scott corrected him that it's Lieutenant Commander, which made me happy. Because I was going to say, <laughs> if he hadn't, Chris would have. <laughs> no, I probably wouldn't have caught it. Because I think he was a lieutenant during the series, but then he got promoted later. I mm, think. Okay. I could be wrong. I don't follow original series that closely, so... Oh, okay. Okay. Then he called him Scooter. I kind of like that one, though I understand why Scott wouldn't like it. It just makes me think of the Muppets. Yes, who I love Scooter. I love Scooter. He's one of my favorites. He's adorable. And then Kazima calls him Igor, which I thought was... Or Igor. See, I can't can't not say Igor. It's a problem. (laughs) So shall we talk about Rachel and Dr. Neelan for a minute here? Yes. Because I gotta say, I was feeling sorry for Rachel in this episode. Well, they did a good job of making you feel sorry for her, because we were sort of debating after the first episode, well, was was Rachel maybe faking, you know, when she wasn't talking to Delphine? But apparently she wasn't. She actually no. does have aphasia. Right. And Dr. Nealon says it's getting better, at least. So, But apparently also Topside thinks Rachel is dead. Mm, yeah. I'm curious how this is going to play out. Yeah, what was making me feel sorry for her is is obviously, you know, she's in a little hospital gown. She's got a bandage on her eye. Uh, those are clearly more, aw, poor person type of cues. But she was also reminding me a lot of Allison in this episode. Mm. Like, I, I've always, if I had to, you know, compare our main clones, she's reminded me the most of Allison because they're both very kind of laced up and tend to be more reserved, et cetera, et cetera. And seeing her kind of be vulnerable of in this episode reminded me of times when I've been feeling particularly sorry for Allison, and it sort of cued my Allison sympathy trigger, I think. <laughs> I think that's fair. That makes sense to me, yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was just, it was just sad. But at the same time, I could fully see Rachel doing something awful again, and pretty much yeah and and returning to more of her antagonistic villainous stance because i think she is likely to want some revenge for what happened to her that is true and in other news dr neeland continues to be creepy 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 (laughs) creepy but i was glad to get a check-in on rachel this episode since we didn't see her last week and i'm i'm curious to see where they're going to take her character throughout the rest of the season right Oh, the possibilities. Terrifying as they are. So let's talk about Sarah and art. The art part? <laughs> that warmed our heart? Yes. Okay. For one thing, well, let's just, just talking about Sarah first here. She finally finds out that Helena was impregnated by Henrik. And I'm so kind of relieved that she finally knows. Well... You say finally like it was a really long time. It wasn't really that long. <laughs> it was last year, Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> and the timeline 
villain of the show, though. No, I know, I know, I know. (laughs) But I, yeah, I'm glad that somebody has that information now because it's just good to have. You know, it's it's good that somebody besides Helena knows because I'm not sure if Helena would have told Sarah. Right. Oh, it's everything's just hurting my heart. I'm also hoping it means that when they finally find that darn canister thingy of the the embryos, if they're still frozen, I don't even know. It's been around for a while. How long will they stay okay in that thing? Anybody? I have no idea. Yeah, maybe that will help them realize what they are. I don't know. But but yeah, I was glad that Sarah knew. But we were actually worried, or not worried, but curious during the episode after she talked to the midwife. Okay, does she understand that, you know, Gracie is, is pregnant with Helena's babies too? Or like, yeah. But so Sarah got a lot of information, good information to have in this episode, which was, which was good. Yes, the, the other good part of having Alexis reappear. And when I say other part, I mean other than just like, hey, it's Catherine Alexandri. Yeah, I was not expecting to see her again. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't really either. It makes sense to bring her back. But yeah, since we didn't really know whether or not she had survived. (laughs) But it was curious because she mentioned that she was cast out of the Prolethians Mm -hmm. because of Helena. But why? Yeah, I was wondering about that, too. Because I don't really know. Unless they blamed her for setting the fire, but I, why would they blame her for that? Here's my only theory. Okay. Because when Henrik was performing the procedure, he had Alexis there sort of as Helena's companion, I guess, right? And she was supposed to take Helena through the nursery and whatever, and... Mm -hmm. Like, maybe she was assigned to Helena, like, to keep an eye on her. And apparently, Helena getting free and, like, letting all hell break loose was was a failure on Alexis's part to keep an eye on her. Maybe. I don't know. That's all I've got. Yeah, because from what what we've seen, I can't think of any reason why she would have been blamed for that. But, oh well. (laughs) But... The Prolethians are not, uh... Not always the most logical? There you go. I was trying to figure out a nice way to say it. (laughs) Anyway. But Art. Art came back, and he continues to be pretty no-nonsense about stuff. At least at the beginning, where... (laughs) I kind of loved his first scene where, where he knocks on Felix's door, and Felix and Sarah are trying to clean up the mess from dragging Seth's body through Felix's apartment, apparently. And there's just, like, pools of blood on the floor. (laughs) And they're like, oh, we'll throw a sheet over it. (laughs) Well, and I'm just thinking, y'all handled that all wrong. You should have just had, instead of being all obviously making flimsy excuses, have Sarah go immediately to the door and, like, take Art down to his car. (laughs) Well, sure, but that wouldn't get us further in the episode. (laughs) That would! They'd still have to deal with Seth's body. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. That was not smooth, Sarah. That you were not at the top of your game. I just, I love how like not cool about it. Sarah and Felix are like they just, they're surprisingly bad at covering it up. I thought, right? Conveniently bad at covering it up. I think they should have done better personally. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, to be fair, I don't think they've really got a lot of experience of, like, covering up murders. No, but we've seen Sarah successfully mislead and and redirect people a bunch of times. I know. But the body wasn't, like, right there with a police officer at the door. I don't know. I don't know. But that scene makes me giggle, though, with Felix, like, awkwardly leaning, like, across the bathroom door. They've probably never wished more that he had a real door. I know. (laughs) Which I always think that must be odd to have a bathroom with no real door. You know, it's one thing if you live by yourself, but anytime there are guests over, I would just think that would be problematic. Right. And Kasima has been living with him. So I've been curious about the whole lack of door thing. Or at least they've implied that Kasima has been staying with him. Right. Uh, I also really enjoyed that. And I think we did mention this in our shorter episode, but I, I enjoyed that Art finally gets to meet Kasima and and also Scott in their little Skype conversation. When they were first dealing with the body, I did I will say I did have the thought of, oh, they should call Art. But I think I understand why they didn't, especially since we see Sarah trying to be really protective of him later in the episode mm-hmm. since he had just been reinstated. And so I kind of get it, but I did kind of my first thought was, why don't. Maybe they should call Art. But was that, did you think of that too, or is that just me? No, I was mostly like, why don't they call Allison? <laughs> okay. See, and then that's where I went to. I was like, no, 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 Allison. Allison would be better. At, at least I don't, I don't remember specifically thinking about Art. I might have, I don't know. But, and then it just got like superseded by Allison. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. But yeah, you mentioned how protective Sarah was of Art later in the episode. I did kind of, enjoy the progression of of that relationship throughout this episode because it seemed like every time we saw Art and Sarah together like it it felt like they were bonding didn't it no i i agree i think that this episode was our first really good development of art outside of just his work life mhm i i feel like we got a better sense of or at least a a better glimpse into more of the emotional, personal piece of Art's life. Right. Though I will say that I, like one of our listeners who called in, I'm not sure how I feel about the reveal that he was in love with Beth. Yeah, let's go ahead and play that voicemail right now. Hi, this is Lindsay from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I'd like to say that uh, I hope I'm not alone in this, but I was really annoyed at the sudden revelation that Art was in love with Beth. It's so rare on television to see a heterosexual man and woman be allowed to share a close friendship or partnership without romance being shoved into the equation somewhere. It was nice that the show had been breaking that mold with them. But now Art and Beth's relationship feels like it's been reduced to just another cliche, and it makes it a lot less interesting to me. It feels like this cliche has cheapened Art's grief and his continuing loyalty to Beth's sisters, and I'm also worried that he's transferring some of those romantic feelings for Beth onto Sarah, which could make things really awkward. I hope the show can do something to reverse my opinion on this, but it's really rubbed me the wrong way, initially at least. Thank you. And thank you, Lindsay, for sending that in. I see what you're saying. I don't know that I necessarily feel that way. Although I do 
agree with you that we really don't get enough friendship, like deep, meaningful friendships between men and women that don't somehow end up in romance. It drives me crazy. Yeah, that, that's a big thing that Chris and I really like is when we have friendships on show between men and women that aren't don't turn romantic at some point where we're big proponents of those. But I guess I have trouble looking backward and seeing it, especially because I was thinking about the fact that when, oh, I don't remember the context now, but I remember at some point Art is talking to who he thinks is Beth and is Sarah. And he's, he calls her, like, he says something about, you know, and I covered for your tweaker ass. Like, just the the interactions that we get between Art and Sarah as Beth in season one don't read to me like, oh, he clearly was in love with her. Uh, I'm sticking to what I've always said, though, is that to me that always reads as sort of art being like excessively protective and and like tough love kind of gruffness, but not meanness. You don't think it's mean to call it to be like a cover for your tweaker ass? That's mean. <laughs> I don't know. He just I, I just don't feel like if he loved her, some of the things he said would come out of his mouth, even though he is clearly a very no nonsense guy. I don't know. I just I'm not sure I buy it from what we saw of of him relating to Sarah in the first few episodes. I guess this is this is sort of the qualifier I put on all of my readings of their relationship is we never really saw what their relationship was. So I don't know how Art and Beth normally interacted with each other. You know what I mean? Like, I never got to see Beth respond to any of the things that Art actually said to her. Right. But at the same time, we we do get a sense of how he acted toward her, even though it's not really Beth that he's talking to. No, I, I know. But I mean, because relationships are so weird and unique, like, I don't know... <laughs> I don't know how those things developed. You know what I mean? No, I understand what you're saying. But since we do see how he related to her, that's what I can base my understanding of their relationship on. And I just don't see, oh, he he was in love with her. I just don't see it. Okay. I'm not saying you have to. <laughs> <sighs> I like art, people. I like art. I just find him unnecessarily mean and weird in those first few episodes. <laughs> That's fine. Oh, back to this episode. <laughs> I I liked that Art referred to Sarah as his partner. Yes, I did too. It kind of warmed my heart a little. It it did warm my heart. And it was nice seeing them teaming up and, and working together again. But I am kind of hopeful that this means that we'll get what Lindsay and, and we want in this relationship between Art and Sarah, where... They'll be maybe like really good friends and we can at least have that. Yeah, no, I agree. I don't think that they'll go a romantic route between Art and Sarah. And they are already, I think, a really nice duo, even though they do have little flare ups from time to time, like we saw in, in last episode. I, I do enjoy their relationships as kind of colleagues slash friends. Right. I mean, this this episode, I think more than any before it really felt like they're developing a, an actual friendship. And yeah. it was nice. It was sweet, I thought. Yeah. And it was nice also that we have Beth really being her. She still has a presence on the show. Right. And getting to know maybe a little bit more about her each season, even though she's she's not 
actually able to be present on the show at the time. Mm -hmm. Should we move on to Mark and Gracie? I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) Did did you want to talk more about art parts? Uh, Not when you phrase it like that. That sounds weird. (laughs) Arts part? (laughs) That's better. (laughs) Now we can move on to to Gracie and and Mark because well, they Well, we have to now that I made it inadvertently awkward. Well, their storyline they it intertwines with with Art and Sarah. Man, the the main I think overwhelming feeling I came away with from ha- them having their own storyline, Mark is paranoid and Gracie is naive. Well, yeah. I mean, there are perfectly good reasons for both things, but I think that they come by it honestly. And we did finally get a scene of Mark confessing to Gracie that he was undercover at the Prolethean farm, which does explain some of the questions that we had. Right. That was probably, I don't know, the most fulfilling piece of the storyline was getting a little bit clearer on some questions that we had had once the reveal came at the end of last season that he was actually a clone. I do feel like this season has been pretty good about addressing a lot of the questions that we were all left with last season. (laughs) Though once he did admit to being a clone, and we know clearly from last episode that Paul has been working with clones, it has made me rethink that confrontation that they have in episode 206 at the bar. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it entirely works now that we know... Paul knew Mark was a clone. I, I I think maybe it does, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I still have kind of uh, feelings about it. That's fair. I think, I don't know. There are ways that they can write it so that it explains it, because that conversation they had was fairly vague, because they were both speaking with a tone of, like, I know more than I'm saying. <laughs> right. I'm not telling the whole truth. Right. So there are ways they can make it work either way, I think. I'm just waiting to see it play out. I think I could buy it because they said that in this episode that Mark was with the Perlethians for, Gracie says, years. And it's possible that Paul wasn't in the position where he was working on the clone project in the time frame that Mark was still there. Possible. Because otherwise, it just, I don't know. I don't know either. I could see, I could read that scene so that Paul knew he was a clone and was maybe trying to suss out what exactly he was doing there because perhaps he didn't know about Mark's mission or what have you. But I don't know that I would buy that Mark knew who Paul was. I don't know. Them both knowing who each other was and having that conversation, I I don't know that I could buy that. Okay, fair enough. Mark had a line to Gracie. He said, we're free of your people, but we are not clear of mine. How do we interpret that? That he knows that since he's gone silent, they're going to come after him and check in at least. Right. I just, I mean, the the fact that he phrases it, we are not clear of mine, that has me overthinking things, I think. Okay, then what are your thoughts? No, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm just kind of curious about Mark's... Mark's opinions of the Caster Project people, like the military stuff. Like, does he want to be clear of them? I think so. Okay. I think that was what was suggested by the fact that he burned his tattoo. True. Last week. Good point. 
that was another thing because we were asking last week, like, why did he just burn it now if he had gone AWOL years ago to the Prolethians? But he hadn't. He had been sent there undercover. And so I think now that he's with Gracie, he's wanting to cut ties from Castor. But now I have more questions because it seems like an impractical thing to do because he was still going after the information, presumably so he could give it to Castor so that Castor would set him free. Right. Then why wouldn't you just like hold off on the tattoo extreme removal until after you do that? Because I think they'd have a lot of questions about why he did that. Is sometimes we do things that don't, you know, I, not always symbolic. practical. Yeah, and it, it's symbolic more than anything. Like it, maybe that was his way of just cementing his decision. Okay. To, to leave that life behind. It's like I just, it's just I associate this with things that I don't like anymore. I need to get this off of me. You know. Okay. Maybe it's something like that. I accept that. <laughs> Though you, it, you mean you do raise a good point. The fact that. He's still kind of doing his mission, even though he is suggesting he wants to leave. But I, like you said, he, he suggests he wants to use it as leverage, essentially. Like, here's what you sent me after. Take it and leave me alone. I think that's perhaps short-sighted that they would do that. But right. That seems... <laughs> see, Mark is also naive, I think. Yeah, and, and a certain to a certain extent, he does seem a little naive. So what's the deal with Willard Finch? I don't know. I was, uh, I, he was a convenient plot device. <laughs> okay. Willard MacGuffin. Yes. He was a possible place where they could find information, though I think the information that they got was valuable and Mark just didn't realize it. Probably. Because they had that intentional shot of sliding the box under the bed, just like they had, had the intentional shot of the book sliding on the bookshelf. I didn't mention that last week. But my comments on that in the first episode, I think, kind of panned out in the second episode, because we see Rudy searching Felix's loft, and we get that shot of the book on the shelf, like, oh, he's so close, and he doesn't even know it. Right. It seems like the Castor clones are unaware of what is actually valuable. Yeah, exactly. They're looking for kind of biological specimens, and they don't seem to realize that the information could be written down on a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. Especially since the biological specimens would be like 35 or something years old at this point. Yeah, they'd be pretty old, so I don't even know if they'd still be viable. Right. That's what I'm what I'm getting at. Yes. Yeah. So Willard was a convenient guy that they could go to for info who wasn't in Gracie's original faction and apparently was a big racist. So that's all I got on Willard. <laughs> yep. Oh, and sexist, the whole, you know... Women being in charge. What's the world coming to? Blah, 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 blah. <sighs> anyway. But then there's Gracie's mom, who resurfaces and is terrifying. So terrifying. And, like, she's the worst. <laughs> she's pretty bad. She's pretty bad. I, ugh. I mean, poor Gracie just looked so scared when she showed mm -hmm. up. Yeah. And while I'm still on the fence of how I feel about Gracie, I certainly don't want her to be pulled back into her mother's sphere, into that community. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, it, it was almost like an echo of when Gracie came and got Helena at the hospital last season. Like, mm -hmm. it was just this vulnerable person 
who felt betrayed by somebody she had trusted getting pulled back into this bad situation. Shall I shall I pull a Helena and make a an animal uh noise reference? Reference is more what I was going for. Go for it. An animal reference. And and Mrs. Johansson comes in and takes Gracie back like a lamb to the slaughter. Yeah. And then speaking of slaughter <laughs> Mark gets shot at least once by mm-hmm. Mrs. Johansson. He like maybe got shot again. Which actually we have a we have a voicemail about that. Okay. From from Allison. Hi again, this is Allison. Sadly not the one that makes soap and sells drugs, but a different Allison. I'm at Blue Midnight seven eight. And I'm calling about that final scene with Mark. Because I was wondering, do we know for sure that Mark was the one that was shot? Is it possible we saw that Mark packed a gun on his back? He put a gun in his waistband before he left. So I'm thinking that maybe this is a bit of a twist and that Mark actually shot Gracie's mother and not the other way around. I only saw it once, and sadly I don't have it on my DVR, so I can't see it again yet. But... um Unless I missed something, unless I forgot that maybe we saw Grace's mother after the shooting sound. If I recall, all we saw was the birds fly up from the cornfield and then a close-up of Sarah's reaction. So I don't remember seeing her afterwards. So that is my question. Is it possible that perhaps Mark shot her and not the other way around? Who knows? We will find out. Thanks, guys. And so, yeah, Allison, to answer your question, we don't know for sure. That he's dead? Right. Yeah, I feel like that crow's flying out of the field shot's pretty ominous. That's usually a visual cue for, like, the soul leaving the body and somebody dying. But you're right. Or it could just be them reacting to a loud noise. <laughs> well, that too. But, like, it's, that's usually, like, a visual that the cue that they use. But you're right. We don't know for certain. He could pop up next episode just wounded. I mean, this show does like to do that a lot. Where you think somebody's dead and like, oh, they're only severely injured. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. Because we did get somebody else who sent in some feedback about the rate at which they seem to be killing off the caster clones. Uh, Kate sent us an email saying, Gracie's very young and doesn't know anything other than what her parents indoctrinated her with, but still she was willing to escape for love. And now that's shot to hell. And then in parentheses, she says, Geez, Sarah, have some compassion for a girl who's had an absolutely miserable childhood and maybe don't send her into a tailspin because you just have to tell her that her husband's a clone. And there's no one left to rescue her from her mother. Maybe Helena. She's a good duck and would certainly empathize most with Grace's situation. I do have to take some issue with this, Kate, though. I'm sorry. But I don't know that Sarah really knew all that, though, right? I have no idea what Sarah knew. Because, I mean, I think the first Sarah ever saw of Gracie was in the folder that Art handed her. Yeah. She didn't have any contact with her previously. I think as far as Sarah knows, she's just another Prolethean who had taken her sister hostage, you know? Yeah. She knew, I think she knew he was, she was somehow involved with the Prolethians because there was that shot of her with Johansson. And she might have known that she, she was like Johansson's daughter. Right. But I don't I don't see how she could have knew, known any of that other stuff. Right. And and the whole thing about Gracie being escape being willing to escape for love, I don't know that that's necessarily true either. 
this might be me nitpicking a little bit because she was originally going to escape with Helena and she only left with Mark when Helena basically had Henrik in a headlock and told her to go, right? So Yeah, I think she was going to escape because she was not she didn't believe in what her father was doing. Right. She had doubts about the purpose of their group. I think that was the primary motivation, but she did end up leaving with Mark, who she did care about and love. But that might be, I think you are being a, maybe a bit picky. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. I'm just, you know, that it's what I do. It's what I do. I'm sorry. But did you also want to read the section about the rate at which they were killing off the caster clones? Kate also says, I was firmly in the, why did they introduce male clones? That's not what the show's about. Club post season two. But I have to say, now that they're here, I'm a little concerned at the rate that they're killing them off. That's probably an interesting meta about fridging male characters in there, but I'm not going to write it. I'm not, I, yeah, I'm not entirely sure how I feel about the caster storyline in its entirety. I, I think it might be making the show a little bit unwieldy. So I'm not entirely disappointed that they seem to be getting rid of the caster clones quickly because I, you know, we still have the whole storyline that they're doing, even if we don't have only, even if we only have like the one caster clone left in the military at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I'm okay with them killing off characters. They've got a lot of characters on board this season. <laughs> and that actually leads us to a, a voicemail we got from Kat. So we'll go ahead and play that. Hi, Chris and Stephanie. It's Katya. Um, I really enjoyed the episode overall. I thought it was a great pace. Um, I had a kind of a strange moment where there was um, the two reveals when Art told um, Sarah that he'd loved Beth and when um, the boy clones were revealed to be their brothers. And I kind of had a moment of, how have I never thought of that before? How has that never come into my consciousness? It just seemed so obvious as soon as I knew that that was you know, had been where they were heading. So I'm curious to know if anyone else um, or you guys had suspected that or if you were oblivious like I was, but it seems so obvious to me now. I'm also really missing Delphine in this episode. I don't know, two episodes without Delphine after such a good opener. No, I'm not a fan. Um, and yeah, I don't know how I feel about the the reveal that the boy clones are their brothers Obviously, it seems obvious to me now, but I don't know. Part of me thinks, like, do I have to care about them now? I really don't want to care about them. So, anyway, curious to see what you guys have to say about it. Thank you for sending that in, Kat. You know, I don't think that means that you have to care about the caster clones now. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's up to you, you know? If you are really feeling it for the caster clones, go, you know, sure. But I don't think that we have to. I thought that whole reveal thing was maybe I don't know. It it was set up like it was supposed to be a huge reveal, but my reaction was like, well yeah, we figured that out. <laughs> like back at the end of season 2. <laughs> well, I don't know that we figured it out, but it's not it's not a huge leap to get there. Exactly. That's what I mean. Like cuz even Sarah, she states the whole reasoning. Think about it, leader, caster. They were they were siblings. Right. So I guess I, I was just surprised that it was such a dun-dun-dun kind of moment on the show. And the thing about art, too, because... Uh, Usually when Orphan Black has a dun-dun-dun moment, it's a little more surprising. Yeah, that's fair. But yeah, both of those reveals to me... I don't know. Like, I'm not... 
surprised by them. I think I'd seen a lot of fan speculation that maybe both of those things had been true. So it's not like I necessarily automatically thought they were true, but it's not surprising to me when we find that stuff out. You know what I mean? But I guess because I did talk about this maybe with your father when we watched it, but the other piece related to the reveal about art that was difficult for me to that made it difficult for me to buy is I think they were suggesting that not only did Art have feelings for Beth, but that Beth returned them with the whole thing about who did she call when she the night she killed herself, she called you. She didn't call Kasima, she didn't call Allison, she called you. And in season one, you know, they had Sarah find those letters that suggested she really was in love with Paul and was just really and was really upset and heartbroken that he didn't love her back. Yeah, but I I kind of wonder what the deal was, though, about those letters, because it feels like there's more story there. And I kind of wonder when those are from, too. Because we know that she finds out enough about what's going on that she, what, made calls? I can't remember if she made a trip now, too, to um talk to Sammy. Right. So I don't know how much she knew and when she knew it. And I don't know what that has to do with the letters. Like, there's a lot of information here that I I don't have a proper timeline for. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's fair. Okay. I'm just having I'm just having trouble with the whole art loves Beth thing. And that's fair. I'm just you know I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're a lot more willing to spin your own possibilities than I am. I'm just like, but here's what's said on the show. <laughs> It's the it's the differences between you and I. <laughs> I. I do like to reserve judgment, like full judgment, until I feel like I have a, a fuller sense of the picture, I think. That's fair. That's fair. Because it's like, you know, every every bit of information we get, like the existing information all shifts a little bit. <laughs> so, I don't know. That might just be me. But we strayed from talking about the caster clones. As we and- do. <laughs> Well, <laughs> sorry, sorry, but oh, but we have that information that Mark found at Willard Finch's or Gracie got from Willard Finch. That's still in play. It was under the bed. I don't think that, that Gracie would have taken it with her. So that's probably still there. I guess we'll find out. Yeah. And then we also had follow up on those books. Yes. That the book that. Rudy took from South when he died. And okay, what are your thoughts on those? Well, clearly they're gathering information from women, I guess. Women or people. Because they're taking like hair samples and writing down all their information. So it seems like they're maybe going to do some sort of testing, like probably genetic testing on the hair. And then have their information written down so they can find them if it turns out to be whatever it is they need. Is that what we're supposed to get? I, that's what I think is they're suggesting, but okay. do you have any thoughts on what they might be testing for? My thoughts are that they're perhaps looking for, it'd be a long shot, but maybe looking for a, a descendant or somebody related to the original genome. That is kind of also what I'm figuring, because that's... My other... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, well, just in season two, they talk about when when Kasima and... Delphine are having the conversation about finding the dental pulp that will help Cosima. 
you know, Cosima says something like, what are the odds of finding that, you know? And Delphine says, well, that's the benefit of being a, a multinational, uh, you know, we've got access to all these samples. So, like, are they just doing it the really slow, stupid way? Because that's the thing. It seems like trying to find a needle in the haystack. So my other thought was that maybe they're looking for somebody with genetic compatibility. I don't know. Because then it's like, are they looking for perhaps somebody that could... DNA that could be combined with the caster DNA to counteract the neurological defect? I have no idea. It just seems like a... It seems like a dumb plan. <laughs> Whatever right. they're doing, it just seems are, a little Are you thinking of like how unwieldy. they... How like sometimes a, a couple will have a second child to help cure the older child? Yeah, or something like that. Is that kind of what you're thinking of? Like, for yeah. genetic compatibility to help cure whatever the other thing is? Kind of, yeah. That did cross my mind at some point, too. Like, maybe they're looking for that kind of thing, you know, somebody with a healthier genetic profile to... I don't know. I don't know. Either way, it it's just coming off creepy. Coming off creepy and very inefficient. Yes. Uh, oh, we did also have an interesting exchange, or at least I thought it was kind of interesting, between Dr. Cody and Paul, where she has this conversation with him where she's like, you know, we're one budget review from Oblivion because she needed to send him to, to, what, she said Langley or something, right? I don't remember. Okay. It sounded like she needed to send him to their higher-ups to go defend or or state the case of Castor or something. And she says to Paul, you know, if you can protect them, I can cure them. And there's all this all this stuff going on, apparently. Also, we had a shot of Rudy sucking his thumb. Why, 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 why does he have to be so disturbing and weird? To provoke that response from you. Because, uh, of course, if, they, if they're they killing off caster clones, and, of course, they aren't going to kill him, because he's the most gross and provoking of them, and ugh. Ugh. But how do you really feel? He's going to be there the entire season. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, we also did get an email from another email from Kate saying, I assumed the Castor clone base was in the American Southwest. One of the buildings looked Pueblo-esque, and I thought Dr. Virginia Cody, the Castor mom, uh, looked Native American. They don't really look like Pueblos to me. The architecture isn't right. I'm still thinking Afghanistan. Okay. But she could be, they could be somewhere in the Middle East. I don't know. But I, I don't, those don't look like, those don't look right to be Pueblos to me. Yeah, I think the uh the structure looked a little different to me too, but they look too modern um yeah. with the the architecture and most of the pueblos that are yeah, they just don't look right. They don't look like pueblos to me. Oh, and Davia says, "I wasn't really all that surprised that the clones are brothers and sisters. It just felt natural. I do wonder what this means for Felix." I don't think it really means anything for Felix. Yeah, because they've always been siblings despite blood. Right. And... Because Felix is way better than those other dudes, too, so... Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Felix is the best. Rudy is the worst. Yeah. Once again, how do you really feel, Stephanie? <laughs> it's so unclear. Oh, I love Rudy. He's my favorite character on the show. That's how I really feel. 
No, it's not. He should die. That's my <laughs> He doesn't have to die. I just don't want him to be around anymore. And I want him to be punished for being gross. Oh, dear. And then, uh, let's see. Oh, I also thought it was kind of interesting. Paul apologizes to Helena. He's all, I'm sorry it's come to this. He says to her while she's locked inside the military base. Yeah, not good enough, Paul. Not good enough. I mean, I appreciate you show- showing some remorse, but not good enough. He he does preface it with, uh, you know, you're probably not going to believe me or something like that. Or I know you're not going to believe me, but but yeah, I, I don't know. I I have so many questions about Paul. I believe him. I, I do, too. I mean, I, I do think he means it, but yeah, at the same time, it's really not good enough, Paul. No. Of course, if he does unlock it, he's probably going to be the first one to get flying squirrel attacked. <laughs> oh, Helena. Um, <laughs> so let's talk about Helena for a second, because she's really not in the episode that much, but she's kind of great in like the scene or two that she does have, because it's mostly taunting Mark and Dirty Paul. <laughs> taunting the ugliest Mark yet. And- yes. And Dirty Paul. Yeah, Helena is amazing. She has few scenes, but very Helena scenes in this episode. What are they going to do with her? What are they going to do with her, Chris? I just, I don't know, and I'm worried. I don't want to think about it. Yeah. Yeah, I I just don't want to think about it. Poor Helena. Someone save Helena! Ugh. Sarah's trying, but it's going to be a big leap to get from Toronto to wherever Helena is. Yeah. So even though I know that she's going to be persistent, I just, it's it's going to be tough. Yeah. I think Delphine might be better able to deal with the situation, but I don't know. And then they can compare notes on their hair. <laughs> How do you care for your curls? <laughs> I don't use much product myself. (laughs) I like it. Just a a random comment, because I had no answer to this. My dad wants to know what was on Sarah's shirt in the first scenes of the episode. I don't know. Yeah, I didn't think you did, but I'm I'm putting it out to our listeners. If anybody has any, any idea what it is, my dad wants to know. So he was asking me and I paused the video and like, I still don't know. Is it a drawing of something or a character or? Yeah, it's like a silhouette of somebody with glasses. Okay. Like sunglasses or something. And there's like a a red design behind the silhouette or something. I don't know. Okay. It could just be a design, but let us know if you know if it's something more than just a design, if it's a reference to something. My dad would appreciate it. (laughs) Oh, and then we had this voicemail from Leslie. Hey guys, love the show, Um, especially the way you two laugh. It's really infectious. Um, I'm calling in to talk about theories on the original genome, though. Um, My initial theory was that the Duncans had a daughter who passed away, and with the help of the government, they used her DNA to make um, another one um, of her on the proviso that they would give clones to the government. So that was the birth of the cloning experiment. Um, and then they would keep Sarah and make sure she was fertile as they wanted their daughter back in a way. 
And then I think, and then I thought maybe they built in a kind of self-destructing nature to the others, so the government couldn't use them for long um, and couldn't profit from them. Um, especially because it seems they're all kind of destructing in an age where they would be enlisted. Um, but now with the developments from the last episode and the idea that the DNA was donated, I don't think it's possible. Um, so I'm just yeah wondering what your theories are and you know why the cast of the clones are looking for the DNA and or the original genome in the form of you know a young woman when. I figure, you know, if it is just someone who donated, they would be much older or, yeah, I've sort of got confused by that. Anyway, um, yeah, I hope you guys are having a good day and, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. And thanks for sending that in, Leslie. Uh, I don't know why the caster clones are looking for young women. I guess the closest thing we've got is what we were talking about earlier in this episode. As far as the original genome, I really don't know. <laughs> I don't have a theory. Do you have a theory, Stephanie? No. I don't. I don't. I just, just some people that they found and somebody was willing to volunteer them for the project. I don't know. I don't, honestly, I'm not that interested in the original genome on a personal level. I'm, I'm more interested in the clones because obviously they're the, they're the ones who are suffering sort of the, you know, they're our main characters. They're the ones who are, put into this really interesting situation of having all these people look like themselves, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I actually, not that I think it's like weird if you do have questions about the original genome. I know a lot of viewers do, but it's just not something I personally think all that much about. Right. I mean, they've given us a number of like vague teases about the original. Right. But there's not anything for me personally to connect to there. So I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. Yeah. And I mean, it's possible they could bring in information about the original sources, and I will be interested in it just right now. Yes. It's not something I think about it very much. Right. I mean, there are ways that they could connect it really easily where it would be really meaningful. But yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> so sorry, we're not good people to ask. <laughs> but if, if anybody on, who listens has a really great theory about the original genome, please send it in and we will share it. And then we also got this voicemail from Lisa. Hi, Chris and Stephanie. This is Lisa. Um, just with some random thoughts about uh, Orphan Black this week. My first thought was, I wonder if Virginia is Susan Duncan. Um, the age is about right, and her involvement with male clones could fit in. So maybe they somebody faked her death to do this. So I'd just like to know what you think about that. I'm really glad to see Art not grumpy like he was the past um, episode or so, and I was really surprised to hear about his feelings for Beth, so we'll see how that pans out. Um, The other thing, I hope you can clear up for me, I'm trying to figure out how this works biologically, how the Castor clones are the biological brothers of the Lita clones. Um, I'm trying to figure this out, and it's just not really clicking. The last thing was, how does Felix lock his door when he's not there? He uses a screwdriver to close it or to lock it when he's home, but when he goes out, he can't reach the screwdriver. So this is something that I've wondered about for a long time, and I don't know if anybody else has noticed it or thought about it, but um, I'll talk to you next week. Look forward to tomorrow's episode. Thank you. Thanks for sending that in, Lisa. Uh, I don't know if Dr. Cody is Susan Duncan. I don't, I don't think, think so. so. 
because she makes a reference to her coming to the project later on after the clones are already there because she she says something to the effect of they came to me when they were young Mm -hmm. or i found them you know they found me when i when they were young or something about that in in either episode one or two i don't remember now so she implied that she came to the project a little bit later so i don't think that she's supposed to be susan duncan i do believe susan duncan truly died until we learn otherwise (laughs) yeah until we learn otherwise oh dear but as far as how the clones are biological siblings i the original genomes used for each of the lines were siblings so the dna that they pulled for the leta clones was pulled from like you know let's say her name was susan and then the dna for the caster clone line was pulled from let's say his name was paul and susan and paul were siblings right so the the source material were siblings yeah essentially and then to answer the question how does felix lock his door when he leaves his loft i'm pretty sure at some point we see a padlock outside his door right I don't know if it's a padlock, but he has a lock that works on the outside of the door and then the screwdriver thing for the inside of the door. For some reason, the lock on his door doesn't go all the way across. <laughs> it's like a different lock on the outside than from the inside. Well, because they're like latches, essentially. Yeah. So that's why. I, but I I think you're right. I think there might be a padlock on the outside because I know we saw Rudy breaking in. Right. And there was some lock on the outside of his door that he broke. Mm-hmm. So I hope that answers your question sufficiently. And I'm sorry if it doesn't, Lisa. <laughs> and Dan had some sort of like general thoughts. Dan says, in general, at least from the first three episodes, I can see what looks like might be signs of an increased production budget for this season. Slightly different lighting in some sets, especially Felix's loft, which is evidence they've moved studios. In fact, they did relocate and shoot season three at Pinewood, Toronto. Tatiana getting a producer credit, and more crane shots used as establishing shots, for example, above Allison's neighborhood rather than just her house from street level, and above Dyad headquarters, which is obviously enhanced by some CGI for the signage. Yeah, I had noticed the crane shots, the, you know, several crane shots, which are usually luxury items. It's been unusual we've gotten so many. Yep. And I didn't think that the sets looked a little bit different in Felix's loft. And they were shooting it from different angles, too. They were. Yeah, I noticed that. I'm not surprised that they moved studios. Mm -hmm. And then we got some... This is feedback going back to episode 302. Julia says... I will say the date rape scene at the beginning bothered me greatly until that effing incredible line by the girl who was raped saying basically, it's not rape because I consented to the first one, right? I know you guys talked about this in the episode, but I thought that line was just fantastic. I actually clapped and cheered out loud. It seems so revolutionary for a show to take a stand like that and say, not cool, this is not right, which is what I felt like the show was doing. One of the things I love so much about Orphan Black is it really doesn't slam you over the head with things. This messed up thing happens, and then later in the episode, they're like, we know how messed up this is, and this is how we really feel about it. I think it's great. Yeah, we've talked about in the past how most of the time on the show, when something upsetting happens, they will go back and basically say, we knew this was upsetting. (laughs) Right. And and that is, is a big thing that I have appreciated about the show, because... Oftentimes when I see something that's upsetting on the show, 
it, there's not really a lot of talk about it. it. It's kind of like, did you just put that in to be provocative or what have you? So I, I like that they generally do make clear that, hey, we knew that was messed up, that thing that happened. Mm-hmm. We know it's problematic and we're calling it out for being problematic. Yeah. Still doesn't make it easy to watch, but I do like well, that sure. most most of the time they do make clear what their what their stance is on what happened. Right, what the intention was of even having it in the episode, yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't say all the time, but most of the time they do. So thank you, Orphan Black, for that. Yes, more often than not. Yeah, for sure. And we'd like to thank everybody who's left us a review on iTunes. We really appreciate those. If you're inclined to leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or, you know, any any of the other ways to support the podcast, they're all listed at uh, tatianaiseveryone.com slash support. Uh, there's also a link to our Zazzle store, which has just some, like, fun, goofy stuff with the podcast with logo, logo and, and whatnot on and it. and things on it, yeah. And we'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode. You can share them over on the show notes at tatianaiseveryone.com slash 68. You can also send us an email to feedback at tatianaiseveryone.com, or you can leave us a voicemail by calling 972-514-7223. We're on Twitter at TIE Podcast, and we're also on Facebook. And in this episode, all of Scott's nicknames were played by Tatiana Mislani. Thanks for listening. <laughs>